I just want to say at the outset that we're really meeting in astonishing times. Just yesterday, uh, Russia presented two full agreements, uh, a treaty that they proposed to sign with the United States, an agreement that they proposed be signed by all of the NATO members in Russia. These read like a peace agreement, like a final peace treaty to end the Cold War. They call for rolling back the expansion of military forces up near Russia's borders. They call for acknowledging that Russia and NATO are not enemies. Uh, we will see what kind of response this gets, but they've definitely laid out what a peace for the world could look like and what they believe it should look like. This is a very big step. The second of three items I want to highlight at the outset is the ongoing meeting in Islamabad, Pakistan. This is a, an emergency meeting of the OIC, the Organization for Islamic Cooperation. Uh, Saudi Arabia is currently the chair. They called for a meeting. Uh, Pakistan offered to host it. And yesterday, today, tomorrow, uh, the 50-some the, the members of the OIC are meeting to discuss the situation in Afghanistan, where there is a terrible humanitarian crisis due to the withholding of funds from the Western banks, especially the United States, which holds billions of dollars in what are the assets of the Afghan Central Bank. Also, there are economic sanctions. Essentially, the institutions of the US, of Europe, of Britain are saying that the Taliban is unacceptable because any assistance or finance that goes through official government channels is legitimizing the Taliban. It must be prevented. The result is starvation, is the shutdown of healthcare, is people dying, potentially dying by the millions over the winter due to a lack of food, a lack of energy, a lack of healthcare. This is a disgusting situation. The OIC is meeting to put forward a proposal, and we're very hopeful that the Schiller Institute's Operation Ibn Sina, which uses Afghanistan as an opportunity for the world to focus on a shift in Afghanistan as a way of leaving the barbarism of geopolitics and turning to the humanity of a new paradigm. On Pakistan's national PTV, uh, yesterday appeared Schiller Institute founder Helgit Saparush to speak about this, uh, Schiller Institute Southwest Asia coordinator Hussein Askari to speak about this. Today, uh, Schiller Institute's Harley Schlanger appeared, and so will Karel Farekin, I believe. So this is a major input um, into the country where the OIC event is, is happening. So we'll, you know, we look forward to, to the OIC putting forward a, a really robust proposal um, with their final statements tomorrow, because it'll really put the West, it'll put the world on notice. It'll force a choice. Will you support these people or will you tolerate economic conditions that ensure mass death? That's the choice that the world will have to make if the OIC puts this on the table. And then just the third thing I wanted to mention is the, the brick wall that green policies are running into. In Europe, the European Union has set up an emissions trading system to trade uh, the opportunity to emit carbon dioxide. Well, at the EU meeting yesterday, Poland and the Czech Republic said that they plan to veto the entire EU climate and energy plan unless this is removed. Because what it's doing is it's making energy more and more and more expensive. It's in effect another CO2 tax. 
And I think that what this points out is that for all of the lovely dreams that are presented about, you know, a nice windmill and it's very wholesome and it makes you healthy, like eating vegetables, what it really is, is extremely expensive. It's unproductive because the energy is inherently physically expensive because it's low quality. It's intermittent. It requires enormous amounts of resources to build these windmills, far more efficient to build nuclear power plants. So um, I wanted to set the stage with that. So we're going to turn now to uh, a joint presentation uh, by Rachel Brown and Megan DeBroat uh, that uh, well, I should let them speak for themselves, but I think will we'll address uh, the, the quality of the human species uh, that, that should be represented in the new paradigm that we bring about. After those presentations, we'll turn to discussion. So turn it over to Rachel Brown. Hi, Rachel. Hi. Great, thank you. Uh, I wanted to start actually just with a, a quick update on what you just mentioned about Afghanistan. Um, there is something of an international recognition of the situation there, which is good, uh, but we certainly need to do more. More. Um, we had a discussion, uh, EIR, the, the LaRouche movement had a discussion with Dr. Shah Marabi, the former advisor to the Afghan Central Bank. Uh, and he, he said the current situation is that there's been already a 14% devaluation of the currency. Um, they're almost out of funds, so that could rapidly get much worse. Uh, inflation uh, is hitting 74% increase in gas prices, 20% in wheat prices, 30% for flour. Uh, these are food essentials, obviously. Um, and that with denial of access to the SWIFT system in Afghanistan, foreign trade has essentially stopped with trade to Pakistan even uh, going down by 50%. So this is not helping women or children, this is killing people. Um, there is a letter uh, circulating in Congress to release the funds. It now has 23 uh, signers from both the House and the Senate. But uh, we need to continue what we're doing uh, to get action on this. Um, then I just wanted to go back to a presentation that our EIR economics editor made uh, in June of this year when he he made, a, a, I think, a very essential point to understand the current situation today, which is that this green policy is not, is, is really has nothing to do with the climate. This great reset, this reorganization of global finance and issuance of new policies by governments has zero to do with saving the climate and has everything to do with the financial uh, collapse, which has been going on since 2008 and before. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to go over a couple points that he made, which is that in, in August of 2019, there was a Jackson Hole meeting uh, of, you know, central bankers. It happens every year. Uh, leading world bankers get together and decide their policies for the, the next year. Um, at the one in 2019, there was the beginning of a policy shift that we see today with two things, one with a vast increase of money printing, and two, with the open discussion of private banks taking more leadership than governments. This was sort of discussed before, but this was out in the open as of 20, 2019. Um, 
So I'll just give a couple of examples of what was said there. I'll just share my screen here. Okay, so this was, so the, it was four BlackRock executives put forward a paper from BlackRock of what they thought should be done. BlackRock is the largest money management firm in the world. Um, move my screen so I could see this. They said, we are going to see a regime change in monetary policy that's as big a deal as the one we saw between pre-crisis and post-crisis a blurring of fiscal and monetary activities and responsibilities. That is pre-2008 and post-2008 financial meltdown and the complete emergency actions so-called that had to be taken by governments to save these financial institutions, that that was a blurring of uh, you know, previous, uh, previous lines in, in economic policy. And they said, we're going to see as big of a change now uh, as we did then, a regime change. Oops, trying to go, there we go. Uh, Mark, actually, okay. So why did they say this? This is 20, 2019. Um, here we have a inflation uh, chart, looking at the inflation of different commodities. Uh, if you look at the bottom of this, the, the diagram, it shows the annual average change in inflation. So from 2000 to 2005, increased 11%. From 2010 to 2019, this is in the period of the money printing post-2008 collapse, there was zero inflation and there was the beginning of deflation. Uh, so this is what the, these bankers said they had to address. We can't have deflation happen. We're going to have to start the printing presses even more. Um, just to compare where the world what is was financially, um, this was the global debt that's been growing. And... Uh, you see why they would need to print the money to cover the growing uh, financial debt, which was also being created by the quantitative easing. So at that meeting also, Mark Carney, former head of the Bank of England and current climate warrior, uh, proposed a new global digital currency. He said, a synthetic hegemonic currency could dampen the domineering influence of the US dollar on global trade. If the share of trade invoiced in SHT were to rise, shocks in the US would have less potent spillovers through exchange rates and trade, and trade would become less synchronized across countries. The dollar's influence on global financial conditions could similarly decline if a financial architecture developed around the new SHC and it displaced the dollar's dominance in credit markets. Hmm, interesting uh, attempt to uh, prepare for a collapse of the dollar and an attempt to reorganize the system in one controlled by these central bankers or private bankers really. Um, okay, I'm gonna stop sharing for one second.
anyway, I, we can leave that there. Okay. Uh, so that was 2019. They called for the regime change. Uh, what happened since, uh, starting in March of 2020, there was $10 trillion issued in 18 months. Uh, that tripled the, the rate of the quantitative easing of the previous decade. We also had the COVID crisis, March 2020, and the United States added $5 trillion in new treasury spending in monetary COVID relief, which did nothing physically to change the crisis, but printed money to deal with it. Um, and you know, now today we have a we, we have a COP26, a sudden you know uh, claim to uh, claim to care so much about the climate crisis, and we need emergency measures to deal with it. But actually, the policies that they're pushing are the same policies as was going on previously, just in result of the financial collapse, which is more uh, control, more. Uh, decision-making by the, the, these same people, Mark Carney, BlackRock, uh, who were, uh, you know, who were the result, the architects of the collapse and the architects of the policy to save the financial institutions and destroy the physical economy. Um, but we just saw, as Jason also just referenced, that the, the green policies are not going over so well. Uh, the, the COP26 conference, was a failure. Uh, we just had the vetoing of a UN climate resolution declaring climate to be a, a, a matter of security uh, by Russia, uh, voted no by India. And we've had you know, many other developing countries start to, to speak up against this and say, we have a right to develop. Um, so what's really going on with this policy is it's, it's really aimed at control and in effect, absolutely at depopulation, at preventing the development of the natural development of, of the, the economy of the world and essentially calling any country that wants to develop as an adversary of the human race. These countries are not really an adversary of the human race as they are also people, but actually are adversaries to you know, the, the, this system. And the system has to be ended if humanity is to grow and prosper. So LaRouche saw all of these policies coming in the 1960s, late 1960s, when he challenged all the leading economists who were beginning these monetary policy shifts and developed understanding what would happen if they were not changed, his own physical economic science where he saw human beings not as an outsider or an inhibition to a perfect system of trade, but as uh, the, the essential quality of economics, the essential ingredient of a unified system of human beings and a universe, which is geared at growth. So, well, we're going to look a little bit more at that later with Megan, but um, one person that he referenced as in coherence with his economic policies was a scientist, since LaRouche doesn't view economics as money, but as a science of money, but as a reproduction of the human species. So that's actually a physical science 
of chemistry, of industry, of new discoveries. So uh, he discovered and led out into uh, uh, you know, his discussions, Vladimir Vernadsky, who was a Russian and Ukrainian biogeochemist. You see here, he was 1863 to 1945. Um, and I'm just, we're just going to go through a little bit of- I can't see your screen right now, Rachel. Oh, really? Okay. I thought it was still sharing, one second. There we go. Okay. Let me try to get it to the full view again. Yeah, just click, click on play. I know it's behind the menu bar, so I can't click on it. There we go. Eighteen sixty-three, nineteen forty-five. So he was a uh, biogeochemist, and he said we need to study life not from the standpoint of a biologist who just looks at the morphology and shape of a living organism, but he's going to look at how life acts as a totality, and specifically how it. Uh, how it, how it moves matter through the universe, what he called the biogenic migration of atoms. So here's something he said in, as sort of a summary of that idea, he says, life manifests itself in the earth's crust in a way that is different from the phenomena studied by biologists. Here we notice two features of its structure. We see that life acts only by means of the energy quantity and composition of the matter inherent to it. Secondly, we see the individual organisms move to the background in regard to the greatness of the observed phenomena. We notice only the general total effect of their activity. So we're gonna look at those components, energy, quantity, and composition of matter. He says that those, those uh, characteristics can describe a given species of organism as distinctly as biologists generally do with, you know, uh, shape and more, you know, morphology of their species. Um, he looked at an organism essentially as a whirlpool of atoms, uh, where the an organism is taking in whether it's you know life, plants or animal or bacteria, uh, it's ta all, constantly taking in a certain amount of material and putting out a certain amount of material. And that for each given organism, that'll be a very specific rate of change, rate of motion and character of motion. So he says here, life is a more or less fast, more or less complicated whirlpool which always captures molecules possessing certain qualities and which has a constant direction, that it is always penetrated by and always deserted by individual molecules. So the form of a living body is more significant for it than for its substance. 
As long as this motion exists, the body within it, within which it occurs is alive, it lives. As soon as the motion comes to a complete standstill, the body dies. And um, when the body dies, it uh, releases back into the biosphere. And he says each organism is an integral part of the, of the biosphere, which is the system of the activity of life, not just the living organisms themselves, but the whole domain has changed by the principle of life. Um, so the, yeah, the organism will release through its decomposition elements back into the biosphere, which create minerals, soil, and processes for other organisms to exist on. Uh, one example he gives of this is uh, photosynthesis. It's essential to the biosphere and all life, and even the noosphere, which we'll talk a little bit about later, uh, that, uh, that chlorophyll exists and that we have a technology of life transferring um, energy from the sun into physical uh, biomass, which can be consumed by all other parts of the biosphere for energy. That's oh. Here's an image of it. He says, if life, for example, uh, if life ceased to exist, carbon dioxide would increase, as you see in other, uh, other planets that don't have life on them, there, there's an increase, there would be an increase of the CO2 in the atmosphere and free oxygen would disappear. He also talks about the migration of atoms of magnesium forming into chlorophyll, which has gone on for 2 billion years. So for each organism, you would have uh, a specific ratio of these elements that exist within it, and that this is a, also a characteristic as distinct for each species as their, as their structure. I've summarized that already. This is just one example of the nitrogen cycle, where the atmospheric nitrogen at the top uh, is not in a form that's, that can be consumed by life. So it is transformed by bacteria in the soil, which converts it into ammonium, which can then be used by different forms of life. Uh, the other characteristic he gave at the beginning is energy. What's the energy of a, of a particular species? Uh, and this has to do with how quickly it multiplies. So he says, living matter, organisms taken as a whole, is spread over the entire surface of the earth in a manner analogous to a gas. It produces a specific pressure in the surrounding environment either avoiding the instances on its upward path or overcoming them. In the course of time, living matter clothes the whole terrestrial globe with a continuous envelope, which is absent only when some external force interferes with its encompassing movement. So life is like a power, which is always attempting to grow and increase. 
the speed of transmission of life over the maximum distance available to it will be a characteristic constant for each type of homogeneous living matter, specific for each species or breed. We shall use this constant to express the geochemical activity of life. It expresses a characteristic both of multiplication and of the limits imposed by the dimensions and properties of the planet. So again, for each species, it'll have a specific rate at which it multiplies. Um, the fastest is termites, uh, which if they had no opposition to their growth, like other species, would be able to cover the surface of the entire planet in a few years. Actually, sorry, that was not the fastest. The fast, that's very fast, but the fastest is bacteria, which divides itself many times in one day. Bacteria could cover the globe with a thin layer of their bodies in less than 36 hours. So that's the greatest rate of biogeochemical energy. Um, insects, grasses, plankton are all also very fast and the slowest is the elephant. So interesting, it's not what you would think as the most powerful organism, but you get the idea of, of the weak forces, which is similar actually to political organizing. Um, but lastly, just to, you know, just to reiterate the, this idea that he, he went for, the viewpoint of not just looking at the individual organism, but looking at the whole system and what life does as more important than just studying the object per se. And um, these physical processes are uh, the same method as, as in LaRouche's economics, but we're going to get more into that. But I'm um, actually going to leave it there and pass it on to Megan. Okay, so I want to pick up, I'm going to pick up on what, where Rachel just left it on the biogenic migration of atoms, this, this um, process of change in just a moment. Uh, first, I just want to say something about Vernatsky himself. Rachel mentioned his, he was born in 1863 and died in 1945. So he was born into Tsarist Russia and he died in 1945 in the Soviet Union at the end of World War II. So just consider the kind of momentous upheaval and change for civilization that took place over those years of his life. His father was an economist who introduced the works of Henry C. Carey, the American system economist of Lincoln, into Russia for the first time. His mother was an intellectual who died when Vernatsky was quite small, and his stepmother was, among other things, a musician, a pianist. So Vernatsky was surrounded by ideas. And the important thing about Vernatsky, as I think many of you know is also true of LaRouche, is that he was not an ivory tower scientist, a, a mere theorist. Um, while he certainly saw science as the domain in which he could make the greatest contribution to humanity, he was intensely political. Um, he was gripped by the changes within civilization taking place in his day. Um, 
even as a student, he was part of many of the student groups in the university pushing back against the censorship and the oppression of free thought, free speech within Tsarist Russia, which was not always a safe place to put oneself. Um, he continued that work as a professor. Um, he also uh, was constantly looking for ways to improve the well-being, the, 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 the standard of living of the common person within Russia, both within the cities in terms of, of life, um, standard of living in the cities, but also especially in the countryside and agricultural areas. One of the ways he did this later in life was to work for the Academy of Sciences to map out the mineral wealth of Russia. He promoted the Russian uh, nuclear program and so forth with the hopes of allowing the government to improve the physical economic um, status of the entire population. So that's just a little bit something to keep in mind about Vernatsky and, and why he might have been such an important, why he might have been able to be such an important thinker. So from there, I want to take on this assumption that many, many people have, especially in the West, but I know not only in the West, um, which they've absorbed and adopted without thinking, really thinking it through much. And that assumption is this, that assumption is that nature is in a delicate balance. Now, Rachel's already poked a bit of a hole in that with some of Vernatsky's ideas. But the idea is, well, nature is in this delicate balance. And humanity, and, and that balance is inherently good. You know, we, we can't know it. We can't possibly know the inner workings of that. And anytime humanity tries to intervene and do something like build a city or build a power plant or exist, we disrupt that. We mess it up. And, and, and there's this really horrible assumption that you see if, if people have seen um, videos or, or pictures of these climate marches among students and young people, the inherent assumption is that man's activity is wrong. Man's activity is evil. We are destroying the planet. And actually there was a study done, I think it was last year or maybe earlier, no, it was um, released earlier this year that um, surveyed 10,000 young people in the West and almost half of them said that anxiety around man's destruction of nature disrupts their daily life and, and affects their mental health. So consider the effect of that assumption, which was adopted without any scientific proof. Um, so in fact, what Vernatsky shows is that there is no such thing as a balance of nature. There's no such thing as a stasis. Um, this is one of Vernatsky's very important contributions. Take this process of the, what Vernatsky termed the biogenic or caused by life, the biogenic migration of atoms, this flow of materials and energy through living matter. This is an incessant process. It, it doesn't ever stop. Life is, like, life is constantly moving materials and applying energies to, to build its body 
and change the environment around it. And when that process stops, the organism dies. Um, so I want to pull up, Dave, if you could pull up the first quote. This is, um, this is from a work that Vernotsky wrote, I forget what year, but it's a very good work called The Evolution of Species and Living Matter. So, um, um, so Vernonsky says, on the one hand, the biogenic migration is linked in the most intimate way and genetically to the matter of the living organism, to its existence. Cuvier gave a correct and precise definition of the living organism during its life as an incessant current, a whirlpool of atoms. This is what Rachel referenced from that other work as well. A whirlpool of atoms which come from the exterior and return there. The organism lives as long as the current of atoms subsists. The current encompasses all of the material of the organism. Each organism on its own or all organisms taken together continually creates by respiration, nutrition, internal metabolism and reproduction, a biogenic current of atoms, which constructs and maintains living matter. In sum, it is the essential form and principle of biogenic migration of which the numerical importance is determined by the mass of living matter existing in a given moment on our planet. So again, a living thing isn't a thing, it's a state of action. And this current that Vernatsky described using the image from Cuvier, this current changes the environment. It doesn't leave the surrounding biosphere untouched in a pristine state. Life is constantly acting in a way which has, for example, created new minerals, which did not and could not exist within simply non-living nature. Um, life has acted to create new concentrations of elements by concentrating elements like iron, for example, within their bodies and creating depo concentrated deposits of iron um, and so forth. So Vernatsky looked at this process and he said, this process of life over time, changing the environment around it um, by that action of biogenic migration is not random. It's vectored in a very definite direction, a very definite direction of development. And that development is one which started in a relatively lower energy state and has been moving over evolutionary time to a higher energy state where the rate at which life is changing surrounding nature is increasing over time. So here's, here's something Vernatsky said about that. Taken together, the annals of paleontology do not show the character of a chaotic upheaval 
sometimes in one direction and sometimes in another, but of phenomena for which the development is carried out in a determined manner, always in the same direction, in that of the increasing of consciousness, of thought, and of the creation of forms augmenting the action of life on the ambient environment. So that's Vernatsky's view of what's guiding or what's behind evolution. Um, so what Vernatsky characterizes as this, this evolutionary process of the different forms of living matter, the turnover of species as we move through evolutionary time, is a totally fascinating lens through which to look at the process of evolution and extinction, which is usually presented to us in the Darwinian way, which is that you know animals are out there in the jungle fighting for their survival, and it's survival of the fittest, and everything is driven toward you know, sexual reproduction or whatever, and it's only the strongest that survive. Vernatsky says no. There's a direction which the, which the biosphere of a, as a whole is going in, and that is one of an upward, higher energy direction which culminates with man, with mankind. And we'll get to that in a moment. Um, before we do, I want to give a couple of quick examples of the way Vernatsky viewed um, evolution and extinction. So one is an example I've used before, but I like it very much. It's a very good one. Um, and that example is this. Roughly, oh, not that one yet. Yeah, that's the second example. Um, Roughly two, between two and 2.4 billion years ago. So just to put that in perspective, as far as we know or can prove, life has been on Earth for three and a half billion years. So somewhere two to 2.4 billion years ago, life on Earth had recently developed a new technology called photosynthesis. And photosynthesis gave life a completely new power, which is that of capturing cosmic energy, energy coming from outside the planet, and turning it into chemical energy, which was capable of doing work on the surface of the earth. So in the course of photosynthesizing, you know, photosynthesis taking place on earth, little microorganisms, the main one was cyanobacteria, began to gobble up all of the CO2 in the environment and pump out a bunch of free oxygen. Now, that might sound pretty good to us today. The problem for life at that time is that for almost all organisms, oxygen was toxic. It was poisonous. It, it tore their little bodies apart. And um, over the course of what later became known as the great oxygenation event, um, a mass extinction occurred in which around 99% of all life on the planet perished. But what emerged? Obviously, we're, we're here, so life didn't completely go out of existence. What, what emerged out of this? Well, the organisms which survived were those which were able to metabolize oxygen. Um, these organisms were able to make the free to make 
higher amounts of free energy available to the processes of life on the planet. Um, that effect of life on the surrounding environment skyrocketed. And in the wake of this, new technologies such as mitochondria within cells and multicellular cellular life were able to emerge. So what, from one standpoint, if you were a little um, organism that could not process oxygen, this was a tragedy for you. <laughs> this was a really terrible thing. But if we look at it from the standpoint of the biosphere as a whole, a higher state emerged. Now, another quick, somewhat general example I want to give, you can put the slide up now, um, is to look at another one of the more famous extinction events, which is the KT extinction. That's when the dinosaurs were wiped out, thank goodness. Um, so, so we see here just a very um, kind of general representation of the, the predominance of classes of species before the KT boundary, which is represented by that line down the center, and then after the KT boundary. So if we look at um, animals, the, the classes of animals which were dominant before the extinction event were reptiles. So these are what we call cold-blooded. They, they don't internally regulate their own temp body temperature. Um, they, they lay eggs for their young. So the gestation of young occurs outside of the body um, where it's, where it's must, much less protected from the surrounding environment and so forth. And then in plants, the dominant classes were gymnosperms. Um, these are plants with exposed seeds like um, pine trees, you know, conifers, anything like that where the seeds are exposed to the environment. Now, after the extinction event, look at what happens. You have two classes of organisms which existed earlier, but were very minimal. They rise to predominance, and that is mammals in the case of animals, which are warm-blooded. They, they carry and gestate their young within their bodies. They're much, more, um, they're much more independent of their environment, and their metabolisms are much more high energy throughput. Similarly with plants, we have angiosperms, or the, the fruit-producing plants, become the dominant classes on the planet. So again, we have an example where if you were a reptile or a gymnosperm, you might not be so happy, or a dinosaur, you might not be so happy, but what emerges after a seeming tragedy, if we look at it from the standpoint of the whole, is a higher energy system, which is more capable of causing change. Um, so now, where does this lead? I'm obviously skipping over many things, but what, what this leads up to is the emergence of humanity. Let's, let's you know, take a second to look at this, humankind. Vernadsky, who was emphatically not a greenie in today's sense, he was not a Malthusian. Uh, he wrote about this explicitly, the fallacy of Malthus's stupid idea that population increases geometrically, but food increases arithmetically. So if we don't kill everybody, we're all gonna die. Vernatsky um, denounced this. So he looked at mankind and he considered the unique 
activity of humanity on the planet and drew some fundamental conclusions. Number one, he said human beings are not merely biological. Uh, with humankind, for the first time, we have a being whose primary mode or way of acting and affecting the environment around us, our, our primary mode of, of biogenic migration of atoms, is not through our metabolism. It's not through our bodies. We, we affect the planet in very little through our respiration and our metabolism. Instead, we employ what Vernatsky termed biogenic migration via technology. So in other words, we humans organize our activity, we organize our societies, our governments, our productive efforts. You can think of industry, mining, education, um, energy production. We organize those things according to what? According to thoughts, according to ideas, something immaterial, according to discoveries that we've made and verified, which are the way that we think the universe is run behind the scenes. You can think universal gravitation, which has made us a, a spacefaring species. Um, here's a fun comment that Vernatsky made in 1943 about this. He said, this is in a writing called Some Words About the Noosphere. He said, here, a new riddle has arisen before us. Thought is not a form of energy. How then can it change material processes? Now, that's an important question because what Vernadsky observed is that humanity, the effect of human ideas on changing the organization of the environment around us, creating new mineral resources that didn't and couldn't exist before, applying forms of energy that couldn't have been applied on Earth without us, like fusion power, concentrated electrical power, and so forth. He said, this is overtaking the uh, biosphere. Our effect on the planet is, is beginning to overtake the effect of mere non-human life. So it's the most powerful force on Earth. And so his conclusion, which if you think about the year in which this was written, 1943, the middle of World War II from Russia, um, is incredibly optimistic. His conclusion is that this new state of the biosphere, which he called the noosphere, or this, the, the domain of reason, the domain of mind, of cognition, he said, this is unstoppable. This will happen. The biosphere will be transformed into a noosphere. And so he said this, the historical process is being radically changed under our very eyes. For the first time in the history of mankind, the interests of the masses on the one hand and the free thought of individuals on the other determine the course of life of mankind and provide standards for mere ideas of justice. 
mankind taken as a whole is becoming a mighty geological force. There arises the challenge of the reconstruction of the biosphere in the interests of freely thinking humanity as a single totality. This new state of the biosphere, which we approach without our noticing, is the noosphere. So I want to come back to what Rachel said about Lyndon LaRouche and LaRouche introducing to humanity a new notion of economics, which is based on the unified action of mankind as part, as an essential part of the universe, the growth, the progress of man. Um, so that is why Lyndon LaRouche after he made his own discoveries in the science of physical economy at the end of the 1940s and early 50s, LaRouche recognized the complementarity of the work of Vernadsky, um, which he said he was aware of in the 1940s, but not really familiar with. He wrote a completely fascinating paper, which I will recommend to everyone in 2005 called on the noetic principle, Vernatsky and Dirichlet's principle. And um, I'll just mention LaRouche cited this paper in just about every paper he wrote after that for the next several years. Um, but in that paper, he, he says this, which I think reflects the LaRouche's own sense of the complementarity of Vernatsky's ideas to his own discoveries. The characteristics of the biosphere as Vernatsky defined it, and noosphere, as I define physical economies as wholes, are analogous. Everything to which I have referred on this account in excerpting Vernatsky's 1935 paper has a parallel in my methods of a science of physical economy. And then after that, later in the paper, he says this, after all, man, is a living organism whose existence is biologically a part of the biosphere and depends upon the biosphere. Yet that is not the essential distinction of the human species, nor of the individual member of that species. The essential distinction is intellectual, a quality in the image of the creator of the universe, a quality of a higher order than anything experienced in any other living species. Since, as Vernadsky emphasizes, the noosphere is expanding relative to the biosphere, so, just as the biosphere should be continuing to grow relative to Earth's immediate abiotic domain, we must say that just as Vernadsky emphasizes that the abiotic material is used by the processes of the biosphere and exchanged within the abiotic domain, so the biotic features of the human individual and individuals are used in accord with those higher principles expressed in the noosphere. Mankind's historically recent personal entry into exploration of nearby solar space implies the noosphere's absorption of the solar system as of the Earth itself. Now, 
there is a whole class which I could give or really has been given and should be given um, on LaRouche's economics, which we are not going to go into today for time and other reasons. Um, but if you look at what LaRouche hints at with what I read to you, the, the nature of this upward process of development and humanity's role in that, that's the essence of LaRouche's discoveries in economics. That's the, the essence of um, the metric that Lyndon LaRouche developed to measure the progress of an economy, which he called potential relative population density, implying that we must be supporting more people living longer lives at higher standards of living who are more capable of making discoveries than their predecessors. And we should be doing that with less relative effort than the generation before us. And we do that through discovery, through technology. Um, so I'll, I just wanna end it there and just have some ending thoughts just back to the role of youth in all of this. We need a new culture. This culture that was handed to us by the bankers, by, the, by this fascist crowd that's attempting to impose this green ideology and handing it to the young generation to be the, the soldiers for, um, this is anti-human and it's, it's wrong. It's anti-nature. It is not true. It's not coherent with the principles of our universe. So we need a new culture. And Helga LaRouche was interviewed on CGTN a couple of days ago. Um, she was on a program with several other people to discuss the role of young people in political parties. And the first thing she said is that what's most important is what's your image of man? What is your conception of the nature of man? Are we cognitive good beings who are limitlessly perfectible? Or are we animals? Um, that determines everything. And Lyndon LaRouche said many times that the, the natural, whatever you think when you look around you at your neighbors or your political leaders or whatever else, the actual natural state of humanity should be one of permanent renaissance, permanent improvement, that rather than these long periods of malaise or dark age and war, which are suddenly punctuated by renaissance, that state of progress and revolution really is the natural permanent state, permanent condition of humanity. So that's what I wanna put on the table. I think that really ought to be the culture which this youth generation takes up and demands and, and demands a replacement of the current um, very bad culture which has been handed to us by our predecessors and current political leaders.